Podcast 48, Family, Bugs, Mining, and Missoula. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. So for the last nine days or so, uh, I've been I've had company. Uh-huh. So, so first it started off with my brother and his family, who showed up a day early. <laughs> <laughs> and surprised you with Surprise! that. Surprise! <laughs> so uh, here I was, still trying to get ready for company, and and then he calls up and and says, "Surprise, he's here." So, so uh, uh, everything managed to work out okay. But we, uh, uh, but I haven't put out a video uh, for all this time, and everything on permit was kind of put on hold, and all the things I normally do put on hold while. You know, I, I I try to you know be a host. Right, because it was your brother, his wife, and their three kids, and then I arrived with my son two days later. Right, and um, uh, so you had seven guests. So while it's been awesome because I I get to like do all the Missoula stuff and and really uh, experience you know because there's a lot of stuff you just don't do because it's kind of touristy but then when you got company then it's like what the hell let's go do the touristy thing you know so so it's had a lot of fun but it's also had a lot of um, I don't know <clears throat> interesting permaculture points and I and I felt like you know let's make sure to push this stuff into a, a podcast before the stuff fades right and and so I tried to before the podcast make a list of of stuff to 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 cover and uh, I think the first one is is that while my brother being uh, a very intelligent guy um, whom I call Susan <laughs> uh, uh, his actual name I believe at birth was Tim probably Timothy but I, I somehow I keep having this idea it's Timberly I'm, I'm not sure why that is uh, but um, uh, he's he's uh, an intelligent guy and at the same time um, uh, a big fan of the Republican Party which strikes me as odd that he is my brother and a fan of the Republican Party. Uh, and he likes the Fox News. He's a big fan of that. And I think he listens to quite a bit of conservative radio. And he thinks that the people on the conservative radio are awesome and brilliant. And and, and, and if I watch Fox News, um, I can't listen to it very long because I've, I've studied a bit of fallacy. And it just seems like it's – and part of fallacy is, is that it's, it's, it's the fallacy is deceptive argument. So if I'm trying to convince you of something and you're kind of like not wanting to go along with it, I could say, ah, come on. And it's weird how for a lot of people that phrase is persuasive. Well, basically you and your brother have very different politics. Well, yeah, he's very passionate about politics and I kind of avoid and ignore almost all politics. And um, and at the same time, I kind of feel like, okay, well, a lot of people who follow permaculture are very liberal. And, um, and when I vote, I tend to vote liberal, which would be the Democratic Party. But I feel like basically all Democrats are pretty much 10% better than re- Republicans, you know, or 10% less bad maybe is a better way to put it. So it's like, you know, 
it's it's not. I, I I'm frustrated by all of politics, and and when I was a much younger man, and then I, you know, try to do the right thing in that space and whatnot, and be and, and anymore, I just I can't look. It's I just right. Well, and the and the point is, there's not politics. Uh, politics political discussions are not allowed on Kermes. Right. And and here was an example of you hanging out with your brother and you have very different points of view and in some ways some different lifestyles and uh, all of that and yet um, you know you guys really appreciate each other as brothers and like the idea of family and want to hang out. Right. So we're close and far at the same time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and uh, so uh um a lot of my strategy because of course a lot of people believe in politics and people that are very passionate about politics their their whole thing is uh oftentimes if you find somebody of a of an alternate political view then what you do is you tell them that they're stupid and and here's why and don't they understand and and I just really kind of feel like that's not productive um I've seen that kind of discussion oh a few thousand times right Try, trying to convince someone to change their belief system basically and usually it just gets them to dig their heels in more and yeah. and so I my approach is more like uh, let's let's talk about the value of the dandelion and and uh, and then let's talk about the value of mullen and let's talk about the value of, of other plants the next thing you know now we've got a foundation to be able to say you know maybe those things we've been calling weeds all these years aren't so bad and now maybe I can save myself a bunch of money and buy a weed killer and I won't need to do that anymore because you know it's not a big deal and next thing you know I mean people move forward but but you start with talking about nettles or you start with talking about dandelion you start with the building blocks and then people draw their own conclusions and the next thing you know their philosophies are more aligned with yours whereas if you start off by saying permaculture is awesome you should do permaculture because everything else you're doing is stupid usually they think permaculture is a dirty word and you don't get anywhere right it's so I feel like too it, much play the play the long game be right. be patient and so for for a long time now when my brother and I talk we talk about these things uh-huh. And the blocks, uh, the blocks, the, the bricks, the, the the bricks for building a better world. Right. And um, and so I, when he wants to talk about politics, I, well, I'll visit him a little bit, but you know, pretty much I, I make it clear that I kind of really don't care. And and um, and he thinks I'm an idiot for not, you know, believing as he does or or caring as he does or or whatever or or like going and finding out about these things and being aware and cuz it's important and stuff and and uh, <clears throat> in the meantime, we'll talk about other things which slip into the permaculture world a little bit and and once in a while there'll be a bitter bob that he's interested in. Well, now now he has an interest in rocket mass heaters and he is seriously considering building one so in a month we may be building one together at his house. And, of course, I'll take video and stuff like that. And he's actually feeling really enthusiastic about this space. Well, they go through a lot of firewood. Tim's wife, Christy, loves it hot in the house. Not just warm, hot. hot. 
Yeah, it'll be it'll be ten below outside, but inside their house it's ninety five degrees. And that's not an exaggeration. It's not an exaggeration. I'll, I wouldn't be surprised. Sometimes it's uh, it's pushing a hundred. They 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 do. They love it really really hot. And so then they burn through about ten cords of wood. Is that right? About ten or was it six? But it was a lot. I, I, six to ten. I know yeah. they spent a lot of time every summer and fall going out and getting wood. Right. And, and uh, the amount of wood they have stored is immense. Christy has her own chainsaw. I mean, she helps get the wood, too. Yeah. She wants it. We we went up to Glacier with them, and it's been baking down lower. You know, it was a hot 90-degree day, maybe. And we got up to Glacier, and there's snow up at that one uh, visitor center. And uh, the sun dipped behind a cloud. And we're all thinking, wow, this is kind oh, of feels nice. refreshing. And Christy was shivering. Yeah. She was, she was, she was really cold. cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um... I guess I guess the point I want to make right you know right there is that um, uh, I, I mean a lot of people want want to make a difference and, and help things move in a good healthy direction and, and communication is a big part of it and I and, and the reason why I bring all this up is I just want to make the point that I believe that it's it's you know play the long game one brick at a time and I put out my dailyish email and then that you know I try to put in like one thing each day and, and it's like you can just share this one thing however you go about doing it and and it and it helps one brick at a time. Well, and I think the repeat exposure helps, too. Um, we did a podcast earlier where we were talking about gray water systems and, and using urine and different things like this. And the, I know the first time I heard about using urine or as a fertilizer or using some of these different alternative methods, they seemed weird. But as I understood more and heard little bits more about why and, and what really Really happens when you flush the toilet. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's made a difference. It just took some repeat exposure to not True. be so strange. You know, that using urine thing—that's an interesting perspective on that. As you think about, like on the wheat and eco scale, when you're at level one, people who are at level four seem crazy, right. whereas people at level two and three seem cool. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I would say that when you start using urine in your stuff, that's that's like level five. So a lot of people are going to see that as utterly crazy. Like, you should be locked up because you're out there peeing on your lawn or peeing on your plants or whatever. That is just crazy. Right. And uh, uh, But, of course, you know, now we get to the point where we've talked about it so much that it's like it's not crazy at all. This is, you know, this is efficient and it's safe. It's it's good, and, and we should do more of it. So, all right. Well, anyway, um, the bricks. That was the point. Um, and as long as we're talking about my brother Susan, uh, I, I there was one other thing that kind of occurred to me, and that was when when we were at Glacier. Then um, I rented a little cabin. It was tiny. <laughs> it was uh, a little bohemian, and uh, and at this place where we rented it, they had like a pay of rules and um, uh, Tim rented something else nearby and he had the exact same page of rules 
and um, uh, I, I signed a little thing saying I agree to all these rules and um, you know they had things like don't park your rig in such a way that it's blocking the roads and uh, you know don't put anything into the fires other than what we provide for you um, and, and you know they kind of had some explanations we're trying to like leave the organic matter out with the trees so don't go picking up the branches we want those to decompose into the soil right um, and don't be stripping stuff off of the trees right uh, to, to have a fire if you want to have a fire right. we sell firewood for a very well I thought it was a very reasonable price and um, you know don't and they said don't put anything else in the fire pits especially don't put plastic or metal or right. you know just burn in the fire pits what we provide please and and uh, if you agree to this sign here you know so um, uh, and and I, I haven't really thought about it very much but it turns out that um, I'm a mamby-pamby rule follower in general now I do think that there are times when it's appropriate to break the rule and uh, however I kind of think of it it's like uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or, or something like that I mean it's like they civil have, dis- disobedience yeah and it's and it, you, and, uh, an unjust law should be broken and um, but it's kind of like it's one thing where you thoroughly and completely understand the law why it's there and what all is going on there and you choose to disobey um, because you believe that it is wrong to have a law like that but on the other hand it's like you know what if you don't like the rules of this place then go somewhere else and um, uh, uh, I'm not, granted, this place had a lot of rules, but <laughs> which but, we joked about, when we laughed about, but, but they weren't that bad. Yeah, yeah, they weren't that bad. And and, and we were kind of we we were joking that it's like you know what we got to do? We got to come up with something so fucked up and crazy that they'll have to make a new rule. We'll live forever <laughs> in rules at somebody else's place. They'll make a rule because of something crazy we did. So I remember there was like a, when I was reading the rule. The woman's like waiting for me to sign the rule thing. One of the rules was uh, don't put up clotheslines. And uh, <laughs> and so I told her, oh, now I've got to put up a clothesline. And I know the rule's in there because somebody <laughs> must have been running along and, and then uh, got caught in the clothesline and, like, you know, choked themselves on it or something like that. So now now I just feel like I need to set up a camera and put a clothesline somewhere where there's a lot of traffic and then and then get this on on video. Um, so anyway, we had a, a lot of fun with that. But then uh, Tim and his crew comes over to uh, our place, and um, and it's like, boy, it's like they wanted to check everything off of the list to make sure that they violated every rule. <laughs> so first they parked their rig so it blocked all the traffic, and they said, well, if anybody comes, we'll just move it. And, of course, you know, people came, but... And then we we went for a walk too, so we didn't know whether people were coming or not. And but Tim was comfortable with that, and it it kind of made. And I'm trying. I was trying to be okay with it and not be a negative Nelly. And um, and then and then the then his boys were like pulling up all the sticks out of the woods and throwing them into the fire. And and then um, uh, and then they were throwing plastic into the fire. And that one got and, me a bit. And I had to say something about that. Ah. I, I kind of felt like, you know, we could have a perfectly comfortable time and stay within the rules. And I didn't, you know, and I felt like the, the rules were pretty legit. You know, don't block 
don't block the little uh, roadway thing. So, again, a difference between you and your brother. Right. And so I just r- realized what a, uh, how, how conditioned I've been by rules and trying to make people comfortable. And, and at the same time, like how hard it is to innovate and build new things when you've got rules that say, do not innovate. Innovation is not allowed, especially in agriculture. You are allowed to do your agriculture in the ways outlined by the USDA. You can spray everything with with tons and tons of, of chemicals, or you could choose to do what we call organic, which is just the same fucked up system, but less toxic. And it's kind of like, you know, and those are your choices. And if you do not comply, we will find you into submission. Well, and there's, I think what's more of a corollary is all the places that have um, codes and building permits for. Right. That's that's the area where I think a lot of people run in, into right. conflict. It's like, I want to manage my poop in a way that's cleaner than the city does. That's not allowed. Right. You must. You must uh, toxify our drinking water like the rest of us. Right. We demand it to be so. Right. I suppose. I suppose you do have the option of just pitching it off and gaining a lot of weight. Oh, <laughs> anyway, I've decided to not make outputs for the sake of the environment. Yeah, moving right along. Okay. All right. <laughs> so on this trip. Uh, uh, you know, for the last nine days, um, I know that we've been driving along to some new thing, and I'm saying, "Stop the car!" <laughs> and uh, I get out, and, and I take pictures. I've been taking pictures of Mullen, and and so for some reason, I've got this thing in my head where it's like, I need to make a video about Mullen, and and a lot of it has to do with the the general mindset of of uh, must spray all. Weeds. If, you know, I've I've planted my field of wheat here. I've planted my garden of whatever here, and uh, anything that doesn't belong here, I have to go out and pull it or spray it or or whatever. If I don't know what it is. It has to go. And um, I I think that mullen is a, is an excellent example of a plant that's not a food plant, um, and yet it, it serves a, a really powerful and awesome function. And so we were seeing mullen in uh, uh, all over the place in really awful soils. Like here's a bunch of gravel and there's mullen in it. Here's here's a bunch of, it's not even gravel, it's more like rocks, a pile of rocks, little rock slide. And there's mullen there trying to bring soil back and and soil and, and some form of stability to an area that's just a pile of rocks. Right. And what an what an amazing plant. And so um, I've I've gotten lots of pictures and done lots of stuff. There. Well, and I think it attracts uh, pollinators or other beneficial insects, and it's um, got some herbal remedy use that I, um, you know, somebody needs to post about on um, permies. I don't know what it is. Well, we've got a thread out there okay. about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so some people use it for toilet paper. Some people say you shouldn't. Um, and uh, uh, it has it has medicinal purposes. Um, uh, in fact, during this trip, uh, uh, your son, Forrest, we were talking about it and, and uh, mentioned somebody said something about it's, uh, if you take a mullen leaf and put it on your pillow, you get better dreams. So uh, he, he did that. And he verified it to be so. He, mm-hmm. he uh, uh, some of the dreams must have been so good that he's kind of like reluctant to share. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, uh, some of them he did. And they, you, you saying that? Yep, it, it did that. Now there, there could have been a placebo effect, like just you know, okay, before you go to bed, have awesome dreams, and it's like you know. But who knows? Who knows? But he. he uh, um, that was an interesting use. Yeah, for sure. The big thing is, is that it's a large plant that does not compete well with anything else, but it does do really well where nothing else will grow. And so we, you know, most of the mullein that we saw was growing in a place where there was really nothing else growing. And um, uh, in Talk areas... about a lot of fiber in the plant, too. Wow. Oh, yeah. It, it, we, uh, we found some that were over six feet tall. Right. And uh, we found some, leaves. some dead ones that were, like, from last year mm-hmm. that, that were all dried up and still standing and uh, a lot of organic matter there. Yeah. And then uh, in the root system, there's going to be a lot of organic matter, too. So it's, it's uh, uh, definitely a pioneer species that, that converts uh, land that is, like, got nothing going on into soil by bringing in organic matter where it just seems like organic matter would not be there. Right. It's an amazing plant. Polydo. Uh, so um, for the first few days when my brother and his family were here, I, I tried to think of, like, well, okay, I'm the host. What am I going to cook? And I'm not a very good cook. I mean, I can, I, you know, I equip out that cast iron skillet. I can make bacon and eggs and, and a few other things, but I'm just not a good cook. So, uh, but one of the things I did years ago when my son was living with me, um, and I took care of him by myself, I was a single parent, um, is I'm, I came up with, I, I, after a lot of checking around the internet, and a lot of it was on permies, uh, came up with this recipe, which I called um, polydo, and um, optimized it, and uh, ended up with this thing where... Um, I could mix up some dough, put it into the fridge, and then you could rip chunks of it off and use it for different things um, here, there, and everywhere. And it ended up being just crazy cheap. And uh, you could use the dough for use it for pizzas, for making bread, uh, making cinnamon rolls. Uh, we made hamburger buns. We did the pizzas once. Didn't your son used to make pierogies out of it? Pierogies was his favorite thing, which is basically you take the poly dough and you mix in some uh, green onions and some cheese and some bits of ham and maybe some bacon or something like that and just mix it all up so it's all through it in oh. chunks uh-huh. and so you end up with like uh, this little roll of, of sorts that, that has like bits of uh, surprises in it, you know, yummy bits in it. Um, what else did we make with it? I can't remember. Is that, was that it? Oh, we did fry bread. I did fry bread the first uh, the first breakfast. Dessert pizza. We did the dessert pizza. Yes, that was, that was rather awesome and delicious. Um, I, I think, I imagine that almost any kind of bready thing you could make with it. And, and the neat thing is, is that it um, uh, it just sits in the refrigerator until you want to make something, and then you just rip off a chunk of dough and slap it into whatever container makes whatever you're thinking of. I mean, it's just crazy easy and, and cheap and, and, and delicious. Um, and so uh, a lot of the feedback that I've had in the past with the pizza Pizzas was uh, best pizza ever, um, and uh, um, uh, the fry bread. A lot of people haven't ever had fry bread before, and so this was their only experience with fry bread. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I think it's been a big hit, big success. Oh, we've got a thread on other permies for the polydo recipe. Right, and and some people have countered out 
on permies that they prefer the more um, the wild yeast and and fermented breads and so so the poly dough would be more kind of a traditional white bread store purchased yeast but there's lots of people out on permies that have instructions about how they do things with wild yeast and fermented foods and so which is really cool too I, I I would love to learn more in that space. Well, for years, I kept a, a, a sourdough starter going. I had one. I had a sourdough starter that was over 100 years old at one point. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, and I, would, I could see how that could be merged with polydough. Um, and, uh, but then, I don't know. I, I, did, I did the sourdough stuff for, for a long, long time, and then my son, his, he decided he didn't like the sourdough as much anymore. So we, I, I shut the starter down. I mean, I, I generally don't eat grain. Right. I, I generally avoid all grain, and um, but you know, I know my brother does not avoid grain, and and so uh, I thought, well, all right, this is something I know how to do, right. and, and so I'll pull out my very limited skill set and feed these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, oh, <laughs> when my brother was here and you were not here yet, then we went to the Saturday market, which the Missoula Saturday market is spectacular and awesome. And I mean, you know, uh, there's 85,000 people in Missoula, and um, there's about seven to 8,000 people that come down for the Saturday market. So 10% of the population comes down for the Saturday market. And um, with my brother there, and then we're walking along, and... Um, at least once, I think twice, uh, somebody came up and said, "Hey, aren't you Paul Wheaton?" And you know that kind of thing. So, uh, which is fun. I always enjoy that. I I think it's great when people recognize me and say hi. And I, you know, and so then this, you know, uh, one this one woman was kind of like, uh, um, uh, you know, saying, "Oh, I think you're saving the world, and I hope you keep doing it, and I enjoy it so much, and I listen to all your podcasts." And she's just it was just fun to hear from her and 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 uh but my brother was kind of like whatever he's like trying to like you know we're trying to go and yeah yeah dang hippie maybe that's what it was i I don't know but but for some reason i kind of felt like you know i was enjoying it and it was somehow bothering him and um on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yesterday. We went to the we went to the Saturday market. So my my brother and his family went back home, and and then it was just us. Um, you, me, and my son. Yeah, and and then um, uh, the, the same sort of thing happened like three or four times, where people would recognize me and, hey, aren't you Paul Wheaton? And uh, I thought it went awesome, and and yes. I, if I'm out, if I'm walking around with a hot babe, be sure to come up and say, <laughs> "Oh, Paul Wheaton, yay!" You know. So, uh, uh, but I, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was uh, more, more fun. I, I was kind of, you know, I don't know. I was, it was a little awkward for me when, when my brother was like not, didn't seem to be. He wasn't interested in those conversations or those people, and then, but I was. And I appreciated it, and and my son was actually very kindly patient with it all too. It's hard to read your son. He's he's a true he's teenager, Mister Stoic. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Is he on some sort of word budget? I mean, <laughs> I think he says about eight words a day, but 
Probably. But one of the things, he spared two words towards the end of the day yesterday, or three words. Yeah, it would be three words. He, he, he said, Missoula's fucking awesome. So, just... He likes Missoula. He, he spent okay. a few words to express that, you know, yeah. Indeed. That was all he needed to say. Yeah. Oh, he, he he wouldn't he wouldn't he wouldn't make a very good podcast. <laughs> it would be great big gobs of silence followed by three words and then more gobs of silence. There's something else we asked him, and his reply was two words. <coughs> Sorry, was two words. <coughs> Excuse me, jeez. And you thought that was um, oh how he quite, optimized it. He he like could have economy. He could have had like ten minutes of stuff to say, and somehow he managed to find two words that pretty much covered the whole thing. Right. And, and it's like I don't know. It's, it's like he's wired that way to kind of like, a zen smooth about it. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's how I choose to view it. Uh, oh, all right. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> so, um, uh, but I guess I guess the important thing is oh, and I've got to, I've got to tell my one Beatles moment story. So I've had lots of Beatles moments where people were like really excited to see me and they wanted to shake my hand and I don't know probably about I don't know, a couple hundred times but there was this one time and then this has to do with my whole other side that the podcast is not about but but I I, uh, have this website called Java Ranch and well it's now being renamed gradually to Code Ranch Code Ranch right but everybody loves Java Ranch and and everybody currently tolerates the change to Code Ranch (laughs) it's like so uh, I was out teaching a class on Java uh, and um uh, it was a five-day-long class, and it was on the fifth day at lunchtime. And um, we're about two minutes from restarting the class after lunch, and people are, like, finding their seats, and we're getting ready to start and so, stuff like that. And this woman comes in, and um, she's uh, uh, she looks like she's going to wet her pants, is, is the expression on her face. And she, I'm talking, I'm visiting with one of the students about, I don't know, Java or whatever. And she says, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, are you, are you, are you, are you Paul Wheaton? Uh, yeah, yep, that would be me. And she's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I love Java Ranch. I love it. It is the best. And she told like about 30 seconds of stories about how it's helped her with all these different things. And she's like, can I just shake your hand? Please, can I just shake your hand? Just, just for two seconds. Just. And, and so I held out my hand. We shook hands. And oh my God, oh my God, it was so nice to meet you all. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, I'm interrupting. I'm sorry. I'm I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Oh, it's so great to meet you. And poof, she's gone. <laughs> so I felt like that was the closest thing I had to a Beatles moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it didn't just make your day; it made your decades. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty cool. That yeah, was pretty cool. And and so I don't know. Most times when I when I go into town or when I go to a lot of different things, then I'll I'll have somebody who will say, "I think you're saving the world. I just need to shake your hand." And I don't know. That's always kind of fun. I think. I feel like. Yay! <laughs> well, we met a gal at the market yesterday. Who, well, a guy and a gal. They were both really excited about the work you do, and the guy's really excited about rocket mass heaters. 
Uh, right. And he's a fabricator, too. Um, and then the gal who's all excited about Sepp Holzer coming and found you by trying to find out more about Sepp, Sepp Holzer. And, uh, right. And so she's all excited about permaculture. So those were, it was neat to talk to those people. Right. Even though it kind of held up the works for us and, and we were late for the last part of the market and we kind of missed that. But still, it was fun. It was. And we ran into Jeff Badnock while we were out there. Mm-hmm. So he's been in a bunch of my videos and one of my podcasts. Jeff Badnock, Mr. Missoula himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that guy's that guy's pretty powerful savvy. Yeah. So, um, all right. Uh, next one is, oh, we were at the Garnet Ghost Town, uh, which is here in the Missoula area. And, uh, wow, they had horse flies. <laughs> Just tons of horse flies. Oh, yeah. That was one time my son was not very patient. He was pretty annoyed by the horse. He's a city boy. He doesn't have horse flies. We don't have horse flies in Woodenville, Washington, over by Seattle, Washington. And he was ready to get out of there. And and I, I kind of and it was kind of funny because um, Tim was saying something about how they've been having a lot of trouble with insects and stuff like that. But the other thing that they've been um, having trouble with, and I, I thought this was kind of funny, is um, swallows. And so they've been they've been um, using a BB gun to reduce the swallow population in their area, and now they're like a little frustrated with the insects. Oh, gee. <laughs> I wonder what's going on with that. Yeah. I wonder what that's from. And and so I tried to point that out to him, and, and I think I think I got through. But I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think he just enjoys shooting the bird. <laughs> yeah, that's a little. <clears throat> well, and, and, you're, and you mentioned about the Garnet Ghost Town, that if they had chickens there. Oh, right. The flies. Well. At, you know, there was a point in time when we were, when Forrest and I were waiting for somebody, and I was, I was explaining to Forrest, and I think he pretty much tolerates me babbling. Uh, I don't, I don't remember him saying anything then, because that's kind of his way. Um, <clears throat> but he, he was kind of clearly getting visibly frustrated with the flies, and um, just by smacking them and look, giving them the stink eye. Yeah. Because, you know, flies don't understand English anyway, so why waste a word on them? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, um, I was explaining that, you know, if I lived there, uh, what I would do is I would just put up a gobs and gobs of birdhouses. And and there are some varieties of birds that would probably like horse flies better than other varieties. And so find out what kind of habitat they like and encourage that kind of habitat. And then on top of that, I don't know what the breeding cycle of horse flies is. But I'd try and find out what it is and maybe mitigate that a bit. Um, So the thing is, is that um, with the right kind of habitat, then you could convert all those horse flies into bird shit, which would then convert into a lusher, greener environment as all the plant life around would be fertilized by uh, material formerly known as horse fly. Right. And right. So, uh, I, and, but then the chicken, Ryan. I was later, you and I were visiting about it, and I, I said, you know, if it's amazing how you'll have an area that um, is just infested with some sort of horrible insect that is just makes you really uncomfortable. And then you walk near where the chickens are kept, and in that area there are none of that insect. So uh, out on Mount Spokane, 
uh, when I had the farm out there, uh, the nearby, we were surrounded on three sides by uh, forest land. And um, somehow there was some sort of bug trouble that they were having with, um, you know, some bugs eating their forests, eating their conifers. So uh, apparently what they did is they bought a skillion, zillion yellow jacket eggs and planted those throughout the forest. So then we had skillions and jillions of yellow jackets on the farm. Yeah. And it's like if you look at any square foot of soil, square foot of, foot of dirt, square foot of ground, there would be probably more than 100 yellow jackets. It's hovering about an inch off the ground. I mean, it was like, if you look at a square foot of ground, it would be about 50 to 70% yellow jackets. I'd say that's worse than a lot of horse flies. Yeah, it, it was. You know, I, but I didn't get stung very often, you know, which was kind of weird. Maybe they found a variety of, horse, of a yellow jacket that doesn't sting much or something. I don't know. But they're, they're a, a meat-eating predator, and so then they'll go and they'll eat other bugs. Okay. So they're a general, you know. Well, anyway, so they, uh, they were doing this. <clears throat> And so uh, the chickens didn't seem to be interested in them. So uh, I started setting out yellow jacket traps, which would catch a whole bunch of yellow jackets. And then I'd freeze them. And then I would use the magic words. Of, it would go like this. Here, chick, 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 chick. And then they'd all come running because, you know, that's when I bring out the yummy stuff. And they all come running to see what I throw on the ground. And I throw the stuff on the ground and they just start eating it right away without even thinking about it. So after doing that a few times, they start to realize that, that some of them are still hovering above the ground. Some of the treats I've been feeding them are still... So it was about three or four days later, you can't find a yellow jacket outside where the chickens are. Because at that time I was doing free range, which I've written about free range sucks. <laughs> right. Um, but the one perk is is that around the farm there was nothing. But if you walk about 200 yards away, you're back to that area where it's like so many yellow, like yellow jackets, 60 to 70, 67% coverage on the ground of yellow jackets, this crazy number of yellow jackets. I, I had this idea that what I wanted to do was to uh, set up a 55-gallon drum and put like a clear lid on it and then set up yellow jacket bait on one side and then a one-way opening on the other side. And what would happen is the yellow, jack yellow jackets would smell the bait, go into the barrel through the one-way thing, which is, you know, what they use on those yellow jacket traps. Right. And then they would be in the barrel, and they don't have access to the bait. But in the meantime, it's got that clear top on it, and then the yellow jackets would turn into yellow jacket jerky. So then I'd end up with this 55-gallon drum of um, dried, dried up yellow jackets, which I could then turn around and feed to the chickens all winter. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. I, I had it about half built. Um, by the time that I, I left the farm, I never did try it out. But I did I did create a, a variety of different other yellow jacket traps. Well, and that's just a, as a learning process. That's a permaculture principle in itself, and I, I've forgotten the right words for it, but you're taking a problem and making it a solution. So the yellow jackets are a problem, but they're a solution. They're chicken food. So um, the horse flies are a problem, but they could also be chicken or a solution for, you know, uh, bringing more birds in, which may also, you know, even wild bird poop is good for a healthy ecosystem. See, I knew there's a reason why I like hanging out with you because you make me sound so damn cool. 
I was just thinking I was a cheap fucking bastard. But but That's that sounds problem. better. That the, I like that. It's the permaculture principle. The problem is the solution. So yeah. I was I was thinking because that a lot of my chicken article uh, came from this era where I was doing this. Where a lot of it is is like okay, I'm selling these chickens for just a hair more than I'm paying in chicken feed, and then I started coming up with systems where I'm planting things that that, that I could harvest and then feed the chickens, and then later I was planting things that the chickens could harvest and leave me out of that harvest scenario. And and I and then it's like, well, they need more bugs in the winter. They need more protein and as well as, you know, more fat yeah. in the winter from sources that, that are closer to what they're naturally suited to eating, not stuff that, that I've purchased or whatever. Although kitchen scraps help a lot with that, especially the meat scraps. Um, and then this was, and then one year I uh, raised earthworms to feed to the chickens and that didn't go over really well. That was like too much work. So then I went to, um, I raised uh, um, mealworms, which worked much better, but I still kind of felt like it was a lot of work for, you know, not a lot of return. And and so um, I, I feel like I still have a lot of growth to do in that space, but I did feel like the yellow jacket thing was going to help a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think most people wouldn't uh, wouldn't really think of a problem like that as a solution. And that's, that's a mindset that I want to further develop. It's, 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 it's a mind bender. It's a, it's a mind teaser to look at problems as solutions. I think it's a fabulous way. Think it through. Yeah. Um, all right. So moving down the list, uh, the next thing is is that uh, for the first time in very many years, and years and years and years, I went fishing. And um, I thought it would be entertaining and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, uh, Forrest tried it for a little bit, but he got bored quickly. Um, you didn't fish because you, you're not really interested in that kind of thing. But, um, boy... If, if you guys were were interested, I would have stayed there all day. Uh, you know. Well, I I loved being out there, and you just picked up a book on um, uh, Montana native plants and native peoples, and so it talked about how the natives use bitterroot and balsam root and um, the ponderosa pines and all kinds of berries and different stuff. So it talked about a lot of the native plants and how they used them and what they ate. They even boiled and ate the black lichen that hangs off the trees around here. So um, I had fun just looking around at the different lots of wildflowers. There were lots of wildflowers out that were really beautiful. And um, Bubbling Creek and reading about how people use use the plants. That was cool. So it's a teeny tiny little creek. Uh-huh. And um, um, uh, and uh, you could easily wade it, or um, at some point you could just jump over the whole creek. I mean, it's really small. It's it's kind of a, a miracle that there's any fish in it at all because it's so small. Um, but that's that's my favorite kind of fishing. And uh, I think most people would not be interested in a style of fishing because I just I just tie uh, a little tiny scrap, like four foot long piece of fishing line, onto the end of a stick. 
the bamboo, uh, yeah. bamboo pole. Well, the bamboo the bamboo is is lighter, you know, so it's a little easier to hold on to. But so I just you know tie a little line onto that, and then I put a uh, a dry fly on there. But I didn't have any of the, the goo to keep it dry, so my dry flies became wet flies. They <laughs> stunk a lot. But I I caught I caught probably more than twenty fish. Although. Um, uh, uh, two two of them that I did not count because they didn't quite make it to shore were of a good size keeper size and they they got away from me um, and then most of them were like too small and um, there was one that I caught that was big enough and so I kept that one and I thought I would keep fishing and eventually I would have like four or five that we could take home and, and have for dinner or something. But we kind of cut you off a little short. Right. You guys were getting bored. <laughs> so, so like, we brought home one fish, one yeah. little tiny fish yeah. and ate that a guy. Trout. A brook trout. What a beautiful fish. I think that's the most beautiful fish yeah. in the world is a brook trout. So, um, that that was just an awesome day, and and you know what a what a great example I I think of, of permaculture is um, you know always tapping a little bit into the wild food area and trying to keep your wild foods abundant. Um, <clears throat> on on one of our trips. And this is probably the last thing to point out. Is on one of our trips, we went to the Lewis and Clark Caverns. But on the way, we stopped in Butte, Montana. And um, Butte is an interesting town in that the whole town is built around their pit mining that's going on right in town. Right. And so the houses and stuff like that are all built around these pits. Well, the mining used to be underground mining, and they converted it to pit mining in the 50s, did they say? I yeah, can't remember. something like that. And they just felt that was a much more cost-effective way to mine, was the big, humongous, gaping open pit instead of underground mines. Or maybe it's safer. I right. Know, but, yeah. but, you know, and I, and I, it's, it's just kind of... Um, I mean, granted, it's it's like we, we really can't say anything bad about it as long as we're using copper in any way. You know, it, right. it's like uh, um, I, I I suppose I I know that I would be okay having paid 20% more for all the copper that I use as wiring in my house or wiring in bits and bobs or whatever, I would be comfortable with paying that extra 20% if they had then, you know, done things in such a way that it would have been more environmentally sound there at the Berkeley Pit um, or what at a, similar places. What a scary place, though. It, it, it does drive home the point of how bad things are. And they have a <clears throat> the pit is filled with toxic water that's a mile deep and almost as wide. It's just <clears throat> it's got the acidity of vinegar. Right, the pH is 2.5, uh, which is the acidity of vinegar or a cola. So nothing can live or grow in that water, let alone all the um toxic metals that are in that water. In fact, they keep uh, draining the water out of it and extracting some of the copper out of the water that's in there. But the water is this 
brownish-red color. Totally yeah, dead. Yeah, obviously toxic. Totally dead. Look, <clears throat> this huge, massive pit of just dead water. So, um... I, I mean, I've I've seen the Berkeley Pit before, and I, I think the last time I saw it may have been like 15 years ago. And uh, when I saw it 15 years ago, the water level was much lower. So, I mean, it only makes sense. I mean, every year it rains a little bit and whatnot, and so it's going to get higher and higher. And um, uh, But the pit itself does not look as large as it used to, and I think it's because it's, it's so much water in it. Now it looks like... You know, it's just a little lake, but it's actually very deep. There might be a change in how they were pumping water out of some of the underground areas, and they stopped doing that or something, so now that water is going into the pit. There might be a change like that as well. Yeah. I don't, well, know. I don't understand enough about so it. The, the thing that bothered me the most about it was somebody came along, and there's a there's a button that says, push push the button or whatever so somebody came along and they pushed the button and then they started playing this recorded message and it's like this is all really awesome and this is perfectly safe and the super fun cleanup that's happening here <laughs> you know and it's kind of like there's all this double speak that's all to, to make it sound like everything is hearts flowers and rainbows and at the same time you know like we're legally obligated to point out that it's not but we're allowed to say that it is and we have to also say it's not right and the whole town's economy is is based on their mining industry so there's this pit is no longer being mined, but there's a pit right behind it that is. And then there's a pond created by tailings from the mining right on the other side. And they, they just had all these all these issues and stuff that you could read about and learn about. And it was it was really sobering. Uh, they have some kind of problem where, like, a duck might fly overhead and go, "Look, water! I'm a waterfowl." Hey, I could use a rest. I'm going to go down there where that water is, and I'm going to hang out there, and maybe I'll catch myself a fish. And then the duck will hit the water and, like, then become so sick that it's, like, it's basically doomed. It's, it's like it takes four hours for it to actually die. Well, but And that, well, that was part of the literature. They they have a, a little newspaper called the Pit Watch and and they said, Oh, there's been a myth that if waterfowl land in the pit lake that they instantly die. Well that's a myth. We've we've determined they can live with four to six hours of exposure to this. Well, <laughs> but can and, they get out? I mean like once they hit it, are they now sick enough that you know can no, they, they come say up with they, could, they said they were perfectly fine after spending four to six hours on the on the on this lake, this body of water, but they now have hazing um, activities to prevent the waterfowl from landing on this toxic body of okay. water. So, yeah, it's a whole really scary, weird thing. It didn't, and then later we were at the. Um we were at the Lewis and Clark Cavern, and then our our tour guide, who was making jokes about all kinds of things, yes. said something about like, and the water in Butte is safe to drink. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, right. Because they talked about this this pit mine, and they were keeping it a certain level above or below the bedrock, so it wouldn't leach into the groundwater. Right, right. And apparently, it's like a joke. Like the water is safe to drink, and at the same time, don't drink the water. <laughs> well, and when we were standing there listening to that recorded tour announcement, there were half a dozen other people standing there listening to it with us. And two of the people that I thought might have been locals, I don't know, but when they heard that, oh, yeah, and we've kept it out of the groundwater, they just laughed. That's a joke. They just uh, scoffed at that, yeah. Yeah, they, were, they, were, they thought a lot of it was bullshit, and yeah. they, were, they were calling it. And so we weren't the only ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, it, but I mean, obviously, we're standing at the pit, looking at the pit. We paid $2 per person to be able to um, have the privilege to gawk at the pit. And then, of course, you know, the people who own the pit are the people who paid for for the announcement to be made. So this announcement brought to you by the people who own this festering pile of toxic waste uh, and, and who don't want to be sued, and so they're going to try and tell you that everything's okay. Well, and it's... Um, it's like right from The Simpsons. <laughs> well, it reminds me of that, of that joke. There was this band that created the... Uh, tie a yellow ribbon on your SUV. SUV. Oh, <laughs> oh, is that no? Buy a yellow ribbon for your SUV. Right, the little magnetic one. Right, because the joke is, you know, here it's like, oh yeah, we we support our troops and we, you know, want to get rid of the terrorists, but really it's all about oil, and you're supporting this oil in industry by driving a gas guzzler. But you make so, it all okay by buying a little yellow magnet and sticking it on your right, SUV. Right, and and you know and. So that's, we all have copper. We have all used products that have probably come out of that pit mine or are related to that pit mine in some way or another. So it's, it's easy to sit here and scoff and criticize um, right. when, you know, we've, we've supported that. Right. We've well, encouraged it. We've bought products that the, come from The there. contraption that's recording this podcast probably has bits of copper in it. Probably. And and then when the people listen to it, whatever they're listening to it on has bits of copper in it. Right. And, and then the uh, the lines between here and and the mighty internet, bits of copper. Mighty internet, bits of copper. Yeah. Yeah. So... <clears throat> Yeah, it's, uh, we're 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 all part of it, and at the same time, it's like uh, rather than denying that the problem exists, I would rather admit that the problem exists, and like let's talk about how we're going to fix it, as opposed to like you know sweeping it under the rug and and then leaving it for people thirty years in the future. Wow. Everybody dying. Yeah. Wonder why. Right. It's a mystery. Right. So I do think it's good that they have a tour site there and that people can become more aware of these different mining practices and economic issues involved with that. Right. Um, but Butte was an amazing contrast to Missoula. <laughs> so the town was very, very different, very um, uh, drier. You know, it was across the continental divide. So the climate was different. The Actually, it was just, culture. just this oh, side of the continental divide. Oh, sorry. The and, and, you know, they had out. a festival going on there, and we had a festival going on here at the same time. 
Their festival was was we we uh, we were trying to get there, but we had to take a detour to go around their festival because they were getting ready to celebrate Evil Knievel days. Right. Right. But I think I think Evil Knievel is is from View, but I'm not okay. sure. Okay. I'm not sure. And uh, so they were getting ready for that. So they're setting up their bandstands and their beer vendor stuff and things like that. In the meantime, in Missoula, when we were down there, then down at Karis Park, they were having a little celebration, wasn't it? The uh, Filipino American Festival. They had yeah, yesterday. Yeah, and and so a bunch of folks getting together, and but much more on a home scale kind of. I mean, they had like uh, like tables with the, so there was no um, band, there were no beer vendors, there was no beer sponsorship. It was more like um, um, cookies from home looking thing. Yeah. Yeah. Much smaller scale. And then, of course, the, the massive Saturday market uh, that we saw. So. Right. Yeah. Contrast. was. Well, I thought yeah, it was Driving across. to the neighborhoods was a big contrast. Right. Which which the Butte neighborhoods looked a lot more depressed than the Missoula neighborhoods and had a lot less trees. I mean, Missoula has a lot of really well-established trees yeah. in a lot of the neighborhoods, which makes it really pleasant in a Montana summer. Missoula is the garden city. Mm, okay. Butte is the joke <laughs> that we make fun of because everybody calls it butt or or butte. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what Butte's uh, official uh, perky name is, but but yeah, the houses in Butte seem close together and kind of run down and and kind of like I just live here. Look, I I'm just living here until I can give something better. I, you just kind get that vibe whereas Missoula it's kind of like this is my home and I love this place different very different yeah yeah so all right are we good we are aren't you gonna wrap it up with your normal tagline okay uh, I'll, I'll make something up uh, if you like this sort of thing come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about how awesome Missoula is, <laughs> homesteading and permaculture all the time.